You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. All right, Palm Sunday. It is a day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. It recalls a time how God's people starts this parade and a crowd gathers and they get caught up in his arrival and they throw him this parade just outside the city of Jerusalem. And that's why we're waving palm branches on on Palm Sunday to honor and celebrate and sing our hosannas. But there's more to this story behind the scenes that I'd like to get into today. See, really, Palm Sunday is us looking back on a past event that has transformed our future, literally. And for those events, those involved in the event, there was a number of futures that were concerned with. The majority in the crowd were celebrating the future that Jesus was about to usher in. But there were some in the crowd that were fighting the future that Jesus was paving the way to. And you know what? It's been 2,000 years since this triumphal entry. And there's still people today, of course, people who love the Lord Jesus, who call themselves followers of Jesus. And this day is special for us. And we celebrate him. But there are also some people, some people in your life network who you know well, who are still fighting the future that Jesus promises them. We'll talk about that. So what is Palm Sunday? Well, let's read right from the source. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 29 to 44. As he, Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany, At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he uh, came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Peace on in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what, will, uh, what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come. Upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. At this time in Israel, Israel was actually a Roman province. The Jews were allowed to live and practice their religion as as much as they wanted, as long as they didn't complicate things for the Roman Empire there. 
Of course, that just fed the anticipation of the desire of the Jews for God's Messiah, a deliverer king, like King David, who would come and deliver them from their oppressors, restoring Jerusalem and the nation of Israel back to its proper place and status in the world, her temple back to those who rightfully should possess it. And to add fuel to this revolutionary fire, it was Passover time. This was the biggest national celebration for or annual holy day for the Jews. It commemorated an event that happened 1,500 years earlier when, led by Moses, God rescued Israel as he miraculously enabled them to leave and escape Egypt by way of the Red Sea. And with every Passover, there was this sense of anticipation. It's built right into the Haggadah, the order of the, of the meal, that they, they wonder if this is the day when Elijah is going to come, the predecessor to the Messiah. And perhaps this year would be the year when Messiah would come. So there was nothing really abnormal about Jesus entering Jerusalem like two like the two million others that were also there for this celebration, he too was obligated to attend. But him being there was kind of a big deal. It was a big deal to the disciples because ever since he started his ministry with them three and a half years ago, uh, Jesus kept telling them over and over again that this particular day was coming. Like in Luke chapter 19, just the chapter before, he reminded them, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. He, it was also a very big deal for the crowds of Passover observers because by this time, Jesus had already become quite a celebrity in the entire area of Judea and Galilee. The Romans and the Gentiles in the area also knew who this Jesus was. Even the religious authorities in the region, we'll get to that a little bit later, also knew that Jesus was a big deal. He was a big deal because he was a miracle-working teacher that that really out-taught even the priests and the, the great teachers of Israel. But Jesus also became a big deal because he spoke about a future. A future that he invited people into to enter called the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, as Jesus is starting out his ministry, and this continues all throughout his ministry, it says, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But participating in that future, Jesus made it very, very clear that it was going to cost him something. And anyone wanting the future that he is making, it was going to cost them too. For instance, on another occasion, Luke chapter 9, verse 22 to 25, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And whoever, there's a whoever there, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? So when they see Jesus approaching Jerusalem, 
riding on the colt of a donkey. Well, to the crowds, that spoke of a future. That spoke about this future becoming reality right now. And that is what sparked the parade. They remembered King David doing it. And they remembered how the prophets of old spoke and promised that Messiah would come into the holy city riding on a colt of a donkey. It was unfolding before their very eyes. And a revolutionary excitement was in the air because of Passover already. It was like a tinderbox. And as we'll see, there was some who fought this future. First, we see him sending two of his disciples ahead of him into a village called Bethphage to find a donkey in its colt. And he tells them to bring the animal to him. So the first ones that we see wrestling with this future is the donkey owner. Donkey owner. The future of the donkey owner was tested by his possessions. The future of this donkey owner was tested by his possessions. Luke 19.33, as they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? When you read this, you kind of get the impression that the donkey owner thought he was being robbed. What are you doing untying my colt? And if you look a little earlier, though, in verse 31, Jesus had given the disciples some instructions about what to say if the owner should question them. And he told them, the reason the disciples are here is the Lord needs it. Verse 34. And that seemed to be enough for him. Still, the donkey owner's future was tested in that moment by his possessions. His first impulse was, hey man, that's my stuff. Get your hands off my stuff. Let me get a bit personal here. How much of you participating in God's future in the kingdom of God is tied to or restricted by your possessions, you know, the stuff of life. Maybe you're just in the seeking stage right now of faith. You're curious about Jesus, but maybe he hasn't impressed you enough for you to commit to being his follower. That's fair. And, and you have to be sure, really you do, because Jesus demands a lot of his followers. He's either Lord of all and all of your stuff, or he's not. Being a Christian isn't just about you showing up, showing your face at church every once in a while. You'll need to commit everything to him. As that song sung before, surrender all to him. He's Lord to be followed. Verse Luke chapter 9, verse 24 to 25, remember, he did say, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life from me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? Well, maybe some time ago you moved out of the seeking stage and you crossed the line and said yes to Jesus. You accepted Jesus as your Savior because maybe you were concerned about your future. At least that might have been one of the prospects of it. No doubt at the time there was the prospect of heaven or hell. And hell didn't seem like a very good future, so you, needed, you did what you needed to do in order to get heaven. And the promise of eternal life interested you enough to commit your life to Jesus. But I wonder how many of us 
have said yes to Jesus and yet still treat eternal life like it's a possession to be earned. Let me give you a for instance, Luke chapter, 19, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 18 to 25. Jesus is confronted by a, a rich ruler and he's questioned uh, about, a, a couple, about this very thing. Verse 19, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Bump down to 20, verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these things I have kept since I was a boy, the ruler said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it? How hard it is for a rich for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now you might be saying, Well, that's okay, I'm not rich, so it's not about me. No, listen. Jesus wasn't saying, if you just do these things, you'll earn eternal life. No, he was saying, he was trying to get to the heart of the issue. Namely, the rich young ruler wanted eternal life without surrendering and following Jesus. Eternal life isn't a possession to be earned. Even giving away his wealth wasn't going to be enough. It had to result in him following Jesus. Jesus was just bringing him to that point of realization. See, if there is no following, there is no eternal life. Luke 9, 24 to 25, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit or lose, yet lose or forfeit their very soul? If you are a true follower of Jesus, then your life isn't your life anymore. You realize that, right? Your life isn't yours anymore. It's not your possession. Your future is tied to him and, your, and the future that he has in store for you. The challenge many Christians face, even today, is that they're still trying to hang on to their plans, their priorities, their ambitions, their values, their hopes, and their dreams. And that's why so many Christians get discouraged in their faith and why they deconstruct because to be part of Jesus' future means surrendering everything and they're not ready to do that just yet. Honestly, it's why so many Christians struggle with things like depression and anxiety because they're worried about the future. They're worried about a future that they were supposed to give over to Jesus a long time ago. But because they haven't, they get anxious about the future and they become depressed about the future and therefore they need some other outside assistance other than Jesus. What's your future tied to, friends? Is it In a possession? Is it in a person? In a plan working out? An investment portfolio? What's your future tied to? My future is in Jesus. I lost my life to him decades ago. Therefore, all hell can break loose around me, uh, and it has at times. People can hurt me, and they have at times. Desert me, they have. Fail me, yes. And I'm okay. I'm really okay because my future isn't in those things 
or in those people. My future is dependent on him who promised me a future. My future is dependent on the one who overcame the world and conquered death and the grave. My future is invested in the king of heaven and earth whose resources are beyond measure. And if if the Lord needs anything from me, then I open my hands to him and I say, yes, Jesus, you are my king. Take what you need. The donkey owner's future was tied to his possessions. And the disciples, if they had not replied in the way that Jesus had told them to, the Lord needs it. This man would have probably prevented Jesus from using his donkey to bring about the future kingdom that Jesus intended to bring. And he too would have missed the future with Jesus. Luke 9, 35 to 38. They brought it to him. Oh, sorry, 19. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, they, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We'll come back to this crowd of disciples after we look at the response of the Pharisees. The future of the Pharisees was blocked by their religion. The future of the Pharisees was blocked by their religion. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. All through Jesus' ministry, he had run-ins with these guys, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, teachers of the law. He had run-ins with these guys all the time. The the, The Pharisees especially were always concerned about the acceptability of people's religion. Jesus didn't have a problem with them wanting to strive for religious purity. But he did have a problem with how they imposed ridiculous rules on God's people. Things like not looking into a mirror or a lit candle on the Sabbath. Like, what does that have to do with anything of God? And these guys knew what this parade meant. They'd been watching Jesus for a while now. They'd been listening to his his teachings for three years now. This Jesus came along, and he was offering ungodly people, ungodly people of all people, He was offering them forgiveness and salvation and membership in God's family as a free gift. And they got madder than a bomber at a rider's game. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And the fact that Jesus wasn't stopping it really bugged them. Obviously, Jesus knew the true concerns of these Pharisees. He knew they weren't interested in the future that he was creating. They were only interested in preserving their religious system and their high standing in Israel. You do know that there are Pharisees still among us today, hey? In the church of Jesus. People whose interest is only in the religious system they follow and who insist on others following their rules too. Like Jeff Foxworthy used, would say, if he would to say it, you might be a Pharisee if, if you spend more time policing other people's walk with God than you do encouraging them 
to their face or behind their back. You know, you can tell who they are with their obsession of the rules. Even good, appropriate-seeming-sounding rules of faith. You also might be a Pharisee if you spend more time policing your own walk with God than you do anything else. You know, I really struggled with this when I was first saved. I don't like to point figures, fingers, but 30 years ago, when, where I was at, the Christians that I hung around had a problem with this as well. And they taught me well how to be a self-centered Pharisee. See, when I was first saved, like all of us, I was very conscious of my sin. That's how I knew I needed a Savior, right? But listen, please listen. What happened was, from the beginning of my spiritual journey, when I first said yes to Jesus, I was told that Jesus died on a cross for me because I was a sinner. Have you heard that gospel? But listen, accepting that gospel only left me a forgiven sinner, which wasn't half bad. But nobody ever told me that Jesus died on a cross to restore my purpose and my future as a redeemed, restored child of God in his kingdom. Nobody ever told me that. And so for a very long time, my Christian walk was all about sin maintenance. Are you familiar with that? Doing what I needed to do in order to gain God's approval again and again and again and again. And trying to look good in front of others while trying to do that. That's Phariseeism, friends. Even if it's self-imposed. Having to maintain and prove my acceptability to God, that actually denies the cross. That's not the gospel. Listen, It wasn't my sin that compelled Jesus to go to the cross. No, Jesus died on the cross because he saw what I could become if I said yes to him, surrendered all, and entered into his kingdom. He knew what was possible for me when he came to live inside of me by his spirit. And of course, for that to happen, he had to, as Luke 9, verse 24 to 25 says, he had to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he had to be killed, and he had to rise to life on the third day. But he didn't die on the cross because you were a sinner. He died because you were a lost child made in the image of God, destined to bear that image in the world. But your sin got in the way of that destiny. Your sin separated you from God. That separated you from the future destiny that God had planned for you from the beginning. And that's why he died for you. To guarantee you the future he destined you for in the first place. Folks, the cross doesn't expose your sin. The Bible tells us that the law exposes your, exposes your sin. The cross removes your sin to reconcile you back to himself so that you can live for him now and forever as a, as a child of the kingdom of God. The cross removes your sin. We get that part wrong in telling the good news of the gospel because we think that somehow it puts too much dignity on us. And we've got to be wretched, Right? But do you remember John 3.16? Of course you do. It's the first scripture anybody ever learns to memorize. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
will not perish, but have eternal life. Awesome, right? But we skip the next part. We skip verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why his name is Jesus, Savior. What if that shaped our gospel message to others, friends? That, friend, you are so loved by God, and God wants to reclaim your true potential. You just got to come into his kingdom first by way of the cross, and if you say yes to Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross will cancel your sin problem, and he will make you a new creation and restore you back into the future that he planned for you from the beginning. Do you want that? That should be our gospel. I don't think people ever transform in their life. I don't think I've ever seen the judgment of God transform a life. I've only ever seen it weigh a person down. It did me. I've only ever seen it prevent them from fully embracing the kingdom of God. I've only ever seen the judgment of God keep a believer in shame and guilt and in bondage to sin management. That was the sin of the Pharisees. They enjoyed actually keeping people in bondage. And that's what was behind all the woes of, that Jesus gave them in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So instead of looking at people as ugly sinners, why not start looking at them the way God does, as lost sheep, as sheep without a shepherd, and have compassion on them as Jesus did. Let's start looking at their future, not at their past, and certainly not at their present. And while we're at it, why not release yourself from the bondage of always having to win back God's approval and start believing that you too are a so-loved child of God? That's your future as well as your present. Let's look at the third group here. There's the future of the crowd of disciples. The future of the crowd of disciples was celebrated loudly. Chapter 19 again, Luke chapter 19, 35 to 38. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. How many of you have been to the Mount of Olives? Yeah, a few of you. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 115. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's Passover. Passover was a time to fill the streets with joy and loud music, to let loose the praise of God, the deliverer out of Egypt. But this isn't your typical Passover parade. This was now a Jesus parade. And they're heading down the Mount of Olives. It says the whole crowd of disciples are there. and So that's over 100 people. And they're joyfully, in loud voices, they start chanting from Psalm 118, verse 22 to 29. See if this rings a bell. The stone the, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. 
The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so from the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. And with bows in hand, this is why they were doing this, join in the festal procession up to the altars, up to the horns of the altar in the temple. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Notice it doesn't say his judgment endures forever. This is why the Pharisees wanted to shut this parade down. The crowds of disciples and everyone joining them, they understood the reference. Messiah has arrived. And Messiah, God's deliverer, is Jesus. Look, I mean, he's even coming in on a colt. And after a thousand years of being in exile and captive to some ungodly leaders called the Roman Empire, Israel's deliverance is at hand. It's time to party. The kingdom of God is at hand. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Think about it. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus knows who he created you to be. And as he was approaching Jerusalem, he saw you in his future. And he knew what you would look like when you joined his parade. When you surrendered everything to him and you entered his kingdom. And he knew then. Actually the Bible tells us that he knew before the foundations of the earth. He knew what your future would be like when he got a hold of your life. He knew where loving you would lead you. And I'm sure he enjoyed the parade as much as his disciples did, but what he really enjoyed, I think, was the foreknowledge of you loving him in his future. That's what compelled him to the city. That's what compelled him then to go to the cross. And so today we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus, not just into Jerusalem, but also into our hearts and into our lives, and into our future. It's his future that we join, right? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. And with bows in hand, join in the festal procession, up to the horns of the altar. You are our God, and we will praise you. You are our God, and we will exalt you. So give thanks to the Lord, people of God, for he is good and his love endures forever. I'm going to ask the, the elders who are going to serve at the table, them and their wives, to come forward at this time. The worship team can come on up. And as they do, I want you to grab your palm branches. And I want us to sing part of that chorus, Hosanna. It's up here on the overhead next. Are you ready? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, we lift up your name with hearts full of praise. 
Be exalted, O Lord my God, Hosanna in the highest. Is he not worthy of all that? Amen.